Hello and welcome to Our Last Meal, the podcast on grief, loss, and food. I'm your host, Andrew, and every episode I speak with a guest about a person that they've lost and what role food played in their relationship. You've probably already seen the title of this episode, that it is a special re-release of the episode I did with Dana Niger, author of Before I Knew It, They Were Gone, a Jewish first-generation American woman's journey through the darkness. I spoke with Dana back in September where she shared her story of losing her entire family and she shared what that was like for her and how she was able to grieve and move forward in her life. That conversation with Dana was really powerful and at the time I really enjoyed speaking with her and looking back on it a few months later, I'm even more happy that I had a chance to talk with her. And I'm also happy to say that as of last week, January the 3rd, her book is out. That's why I wanted to re-release the episode today, so I'm going to put that out there in a moment. I do want to encourage you to go out to Amazon and find her book. Again, that's Before I Knew It, They Were Gone, a Jewish first-generation American woman's journey through the darkness. I will have a link to it in the show notes, and I just want to call out um, that link is not an affiliate link. I do not make any profit off of it. I just really want to share this book. I want you to get to go out there and read it. So that'll be in the show notes. I do hope you enjoy the episode. I hope you enjoy the book. I know personally, I cannot wait to get it here so I can read it. Um, And I want to thank Dana again. It's been a couple months, but I really do want to thank her for coming on the show and, and talking about her book and something so personal and just for writing it and sharing it with the world. So I'm going to go and put the episode on here in a moment. Uh, I do want to encourage you before I do so, if you enjoy the episode today, if you enjoy the show, please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, I'd love five stars, but whatever you feel right. Um, Any kind of rating and review you do is good for the show, so please do that. If you're interested in learning more about the show, you can go to ourlastmillpod.com and you can you know, reach out there through Share Your Story if you ever, if you'd ever like to be a guest on the show. You also can go to Our Last Meal Pod on social media, so Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, um, whatever the case is, you can reach out there. Just follow just to get updates on the show. And with all of that being said, we'll go ahead and kick it over to the episode. Hello and welcome to Our Last Meal. I'm your host, Andrew, and my guest this week is author and chief human resources officer of Hive Talent Acquisition Firm, Dana Niger. In addition to co-founding a successful international staffing firm, Dana will soon be releasing her new book, Before I Knew It, They Were Gone, a Jewish first-generation American woman's journey through the darkness. Dana, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Andrew. You are very welcome. Uh, We were just talking about this a second ago. We get to say author behind your name now. How cool is that? one of the craziest things when you said that I was like whoa he's talking about me <laughs> it's my first book obviously so I'm a little new but s- still it's an amazing thing you get to say you're an author now you wrote a book you created something well just like you get to say you're a podcaster right we're both professionals and seem to know what we're doing <laughs> to be determined I, yeah well you know that's the thing it's a, it's very much a fake it till you make it and if nothing else make it look like you feel comfortable with what you're doing I am admittedly having a little imposter syndrome in this moment oh. but thank you <laughs> so you know I, I love that you bring that up because that is something in my professional life and even in personal life that I, I've struggled with myself is that imposter syndrome. Um, how, how do you deal with that? 
interesting. I'm dealing with it literally right now, right? Because my book's coming out the end of this year, which is 2022, fingers crossed. Um, and it is a memoir. It is a vulnerable moment, a moment of, of, in writing of my my life, my world up until this point. So yeah, it's uh, I'm living in imposter syndrome at the moment. I didn't even write this book, did not think it would get picked up by a publisher. Um, for anybody but myself, this was therapy for myself. This is about loss, tragic loss, um, losing my entire immediate family, unfortunately, to cancer and various things. And so sharing that information um, from the perspective of self-help, self-care, right, self-awareness, nonfiction, um, yes, is vulnerable, is opening yourself up. But also, if I can help even one person somewhere in the world to feel less lonely, then that was the goal. And I'll tell you, I think that's a noble goal. And it really, it, it reminds me of why I started the podcast too, was, you know, it, these are not fun conversations to have. These are not pleasant things to talk about, but there is always that possibility that, hey, one person might hear this, might read this, might, you know, come across this and feel a little bit better. And that that's, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that's got to count for something. That has to mean something if you're able to help just even one person. I agree with you. I agree with you. And just having me on your podcast, this is really great. Um, you and I were sort of briefly talking um, and getting to know each other better before uh, the podcast started, you know, with the whole idea of how this plays around food and a last meal, perhaps with a loved one or loved ones and being Jewish, um, not just culturally Jewish, but religion as well. Um, mm -hmm. And having been raised that way and my, my whole family on both sides are Jewish. It's, it's food is a big deal in our religion, <laughs> in our culture. And I can think of many last meals that have wonderful memories, including the meal itself with those people. Yeah, and and we'll get into some of that too. I mean, but we you know we were talking about that and this idea that you know one of the, one of the great ways to honor somebody you care about or cared about is you know a, a food that they loved. You know, I I I can just think about you know just food I grew up eating and just thinking about how I can I can relate one dish to one family member and just eating that now. It immediately makes me think of them. Do you ever see that Disney or Pixar movie, Ratatouille, where towards the end, the food critic is eating something that literally in his mind takes him back. You see in the movie it happening to his childhood. It yeah. was Ratatouille, actually. <laughs> a, bite of, a bite of Ratatouille, and it took him back to his childhood immediately. I have those moments every now and then as well. Um, one of them has to do with something so silly. But you and I were both saying that your wife and I have this in common with my husband, yeah. right? Is the uh, <laughs> spicy mustard from McDonald's yes. that I used to eat with my chicken nuggets. And uh, it has been gone for so many years. And then a few years ago, it just showed up out of nowhere. And I tell you, literally dipping that nugget into that, smelling the sauce, and then when it hitting my tongue and it all coming together, that whole olfactory plus the, the taste and the scent, everything literally brought me back to childhood like after soccer games and after dance classes you know things like that yeah and i love that you brought up ratatouille too because i, I feel like ratatouille is a perfect example of like the the idea here and you know it's, it's oddly enough my wife and i were talking about that movie last night our daughter she watched it for the first time last year and so we've now watched it you, you have a six-year-old i do when you have a you have a small child when they find a movie they like you're gonna watch it a lot so we've yes. seen it several times in the last year but I, I love that movie and that scene especially. We, we were talking about how they did such a good job in that movie. They didn't force feed it to you. They didn't – they weren't ham-fisted about it. They were very much – you knew exactly what they were trying to say in that one scene. And it, it's crazy that in a kid's movie, in a cartoon, they did such a good job of just displaying, okay, the pure emotion that this character had tied to food. Mm -hmm. um, 
for anyone who listens to this who's never seen Ratatouille, certainly go watch it. It's on Disney Plus. It's definitely worth watching. Um, but yeah, I, I love Even that. Even without scene. children. Yeah, that's that's one of those. If somebody told me as an adult that they just uh, watch Ratatouille by themselves, I wouldn't judge on even a little bit. Nope. No, it's a uh, yeah. You know, we were talking about the hot mustard before, um, and just you know how that can take you back to ch- or how that took you back to childhood. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things. It, it it never ceases to amaze me how something that you know you can go back and eat it as an adult, and it can take you right back to a place. Uh, the thing for me is the Little Debbie donut sticks. I don't know if you ever tried those. I don't know if I've ever tried them, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. They are so sugary and so just mm. fake sweet. It's just, I, I I will get them every once in a while now as an adult. I can never finish them. Uh, the only reason I get them is my grandmother always had a box of them at the house growing up. Mm. So just every once in a while, I'll buy, a, I'll buy a, a pack at the gas station whenever I pop in. And I'm just, I'm not going to like these. I'm not going to finish them. But I need to I need to buy these right now. I need I need to try these. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, in that moment, you wanted that comfort, and you knew because you just said it. You're like, I'm not gonna like it. I'm not gonna finish this, but I want it right now in this moment. So that moment, it needed you, and you needed it, right? Yeah, that's the. I love the idea of comfort food. Um, there's just there's there's so much. So you talked about uh you know food being such a an important part of your your culture and your religion. I mean, what are some comfort foods that you love? One of them is uh, probably a little unique, um, especially to Judaism, and a lot of the stuff I'm going to say might be that way. I'll try to keep it a little less, uh, you know, cultural from that perspective if I can, but it's tough. Um, but my mother, before she passed, and for many years, made a haroset, which is a nut and fruit-based and sometimes wine-based, and hers was, haroset, <laughs> um, which is sort of a chutney, but not so saucy, much more thick from the perspective of just chunks of things that yeah. you use in a uh, Passover Seder and during Passover as far as the spring holiday in Judaism. And to this day, there are so many friends of my mother, even since her passing over 20 years ago, um, mm. who still make the recipe. And they are sure to tell me about it or send me pictures or both every year. And it warms me. Like, I love it so much. So Passover was definitely my mother's like big Jewish holiday. So yeah. the, that's one of the ones where I look back and I remember the smells and the people and the fun. I I love that too, though, that you have so many people in your, in your life who they associate that, that not just that you associate that dish with your mother, but they do as well. And then they, they know that it's going to, okay, I'm going to send this picture to Dana. I'm going to tell her about this because I know that she's going to appreciate this, that this is going to be, you know, helpful for her. I love that there's so many people willing to do that in your life. Thank you. Yeah. It's part of my support system for sure. And I bet in some way it's, helpful to them too you know it's some sort of comfort and support for them as well they lost a friend they try not to judge or compare themselves to me which I try not to do the same thing right because losing a friend is probably very similar to losing a sister to some of them you know yeah so well and as you know it's I won't say funny but it's interesting I think um grief and it's so relative right um, there, there's so much about life I feel like is relative. And I've, my wife and I talk about this sometimes and she, you know, one of us will say that, you know, like, oh, I feel silly for feeling this way, you know, because other people don't deal with it the same way. But it's that idea that it is relative, you know. Um, I, I I don't think losing a parent could be compared to losing a friend. But, you know, there, there's just something about, you know, how, how much that person meant to you that it's, it's not a, you can never say it's exactly the same or try to compare the two things because they are so different because you knew this, this, you know, two different people have two different perspectives of the same person, but just because of how they knew them, the relationship, mm-hmm. um, there's just so much there. So true. Loss regardless is such a 
physical, mental, emotional challenge to your entire no. being, that's again why we just don't judge because a loss is a loss, no matter how good or not so great that someone is taking it, right? No. And and even the grieving process, you know, one of the things I've learned is um, you know, it's just it's everybody grieves differently. And it's it's hard to say that there's any right or wrong way. Um right. It's one of those, it's almost instinctual that, you know, people kind of know what they need sometimes, you know, to help them grieve. That's true. Food can be a part of that too. Not that I want to talk about food from the negative perspective of, you know, binging and, and eating disorders, et cetera, but food can be so incredibly comforting, can't it? Yeah. I mean, I can tell you so many moments in, in situations where, unfortunately, I lost my father, my mother, and my brother. And in all those situations, people came from all over and had the, the food tree going so that, you know, to make sure that me and, and the other family members that were coming in to help support during these times of loss were, were fed. It was the one thing you didn't have to worry about, right? Oh. The noodle kugel and the, the sweet and the savory versions and all of the deli meats and the cheese. It's like, bring me the finest <laughs> meats and cheeses. I mean, like, it's hilarious <laughs> and wonderful, right? Yeah. Multiple kinds of fruit salads, multiple kinds of macaroni and noodle salads, right? Like you're just, <laughs> it's, it is funny how like, it almost seems like whenever somebody passes, like it, it's almost like, okay, we have to put together a good spread. Um, I remember when I was a, um, I was a sophomore in high school, my, my uncle passed away. He battled cancer for a few years. Um, and it was, it, it was rough. You know, we got a call the morning that he passed that, you know, you know, the morning of the day he passed, um, we got a phone call that, you know, Terry's not going to make it to the day. Um, if you want to come say goodbye, you need to come see him. So every, the entire family just all congregated to his house. And we spent the entire day, you know, <laughs> and it's, um, I haven't really thought about this in a long time, but just that day, just all being there and you're just sitting around essentially just waiting for it to happen. And I am so thankful that, you know, it was, it was a time where we were all family was together because that's when you need your family the most. Um, and it's just this weird sense of sadness and like, okay, I'm, we're glad we're together. And so there's a little bit of joy there, but I, I, I even remember that day, like, you know, just, okay, we need to get some food together. We need to make sure we have food here. So we almost had just a, a spread out just, uh, cause you need to eat and it's, it can be comforting just to have a meal with people you care about, especially in a situation like that. Isn't that so funny? I love the way you said that it can be comforting to have a meal with yeah. people you love and care about. And it really can, even in the worst of times. Yeah. In the worst of times. Uh, you know, you think about it, it's, uh, it's almost a common trope. And I think in, uh, in literature, you know, but, or, you know, movies or TV where somebody's having a bad day and you know, what do they do? They sit down to have some ice cream or like have a slice of pie or slice of cake or let me make you a meal. I mean, and it can, it, it's not just for your body. Sometimes it really is for your soul. So funny that you bring that up because it always brings me back to like, moments in high school uh, English and literature classes. I took honors classes and they were always trying to get the, you know, mu as much as they could out of you in your writing, right? To prepare yeah. you for college. And it was those situations that are like in the book when they're having this meal and they're eating this, what does it symbolize or what can you, but what you just said was exactly that. So A plus for you in case you never <laughs> got A plus, right? In, in high school English. <laughs> I don't want to brag, but I took an honors in an AP class. All right. So like, you're good. You're good. But that, that right there is exactly it, right? Everyone's sitting around. It might not be because of the best thing, but you're together, yeah. together and you're having this meal. And for me, I'll never forget 
you know, slapping on schmear on bagels, loading on the, um, the cucumbers, the tomatoes, the onions, maybe some, you know, um, smoked salmon, right? And doing it yeah. a traditional style of, you know, what we think we want, you know, on a bagel kind of thing, which is so great. And then everything else <laughs> keeps going. Just keeps going. Don't forget yeah. to hydrate. That's all I have to yeah. say. Always, always make sure you got some water on hand. You know, you just, you never know. I, I joke with my wife all the time that that's, I've got so many bad habits, but I feel like one of the best ones is like, I always keep water on hand. So I've got so many other things going, you know, going wrong probably, but at least I'm hydrated. That's gotta, that's gotta be, that's gotta be good for something. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to ask you, so before we go into the topic, you know, just this idea of you writing a book. And, you know, you mentioned that it was therapeutic for you and it was, there was never an intention of, I'm going to get this out there in the world, but just more of a, I'm doing this for me. Yeah. What, what got you started? Like, what was, what was the, the moment that you said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write. I'm going to just get it out. Yeah. About a year ago, probably a little less than that, actually, I, we were relocating some boxes in some unfinished space in our house and they were boxes full of journals from after my father's passing, then after my mother's passing, and then also after my brother's passing. And I was like, you know what? I would love to organize all of this. And I didn't yeah. mean organize it in those boxes somewhere else in the house, but I literally meant just it just worked. And I started speaking with a ghostwriter because I do own my own company. I do have a six-year-old. My husband is also very, very busy and high level where he is in his you know career. And it was just like, I don't necessarily have the time to sit and just write, right? So I engaged a ghostwriter who came highly recommended who now we are like sisters and, and, and very good friends which is wonderful um and i give her credit with me in the book because of that because she really did make my words sound the way that i asked her to which was fantastic <laughs> um and, and because of all of that i was able to take these journals and take that writing and give this sort of stream of consciousness view to her for her to help me organize and from those words I found a, probably six months of, of much needed therapy that I didn't realize that I needed on top of therapy that I've already done, you know, after those oh. losses. And it was great. Um, and then just organizing it into a manuscript was really my ghostwriter Phyllis's idea. She was like, I mean, it doesn't have to become anything, but wouldn't you like to see what this looks like? And I said, well, let me ask you, I know we've become close, so please don't be biased. Be honest from a professional perspective do you think that my story even has a shot as a book? Like not a book, like on a shelf <laughs> to buy, right? Like I, I honestly sounded that dumb about it. I think when I was talking to her and she was so sweet and she's such a very kind person. Oh, Dana, she says to me, I don't know anybody who would want to read this story. If you want to know the truth, it's very, very entertaining and very well thought out but on both of our parts. And, yeah. you know, she says it presents well. And I said, okay, well, whatever. Right. And who knew? <laughs> I'm still very flabbergasted in in my own right. <laughs> That's and I can imagine it's got to be incredible this feeling of like okay I I had never had intentions of this and then it almost sounds like it just kind of took on a life of its own and just has evolved and become this thing. Yeah, that's it, very well said. It did, and then when it got picked up and you know dealing and I shouldn't say dealing in a negative way because they've been amazing too, but working and collaborating with my publisher currently and trying to get this book out and. It's moved into design, so we're dealing with the whole design of the cover and, and font sizes and things like that. You know, it's very cool. It's a neat process that I never thought that I would be in, and I'm an avid reader. And I have plenty of colleagues and friends and former 
students of my, you know, former my alma mater and that, who are authors, legit authors. And it's just kind of crazy, again, with that imposter syndrome, feeling yeah. like I'm even close to a level of deserving to be near them. It doesn't make sense. It, you know, it's one of those, I mean, I, I've never been in a position where I have a book about to, be, about to come out. Uh, hey, maybe one day. Um, maybe one day. But I'll, I'll say this. It's one of those, I would just say, stop, breathe, and appreciate it for what it is. Give yourself the credit. Give yourself the grace of, okay, I've, I've done something to achieve this. Um, don't question it too much. Yeah, no, you're right. Well, when it came down to the fact that I really do have a very bizarre and unique at the same time story yeah. with my parents both dying on the same day, mere hours apart from each other, a year apart from each other, right? So they have the same death anniversary. And my, my brother died several years later, but I don't know too many people in the world and I know they exist. So I'm certainly not trying to say I'm the only one, um, but I personally don't know anyone today who has lost their entire immediate family and yeah. somehow still managed to become a semi-contributing part of society. It is a very challenging perspective to look and not necessarily be long-term affected by the trauma that will manifest in some fashion if you don't take care of that through some sort of therapeutic, you know, work, right, on yourself and what you've been through. Um, and I've spent a lot of time in therapy, <laughs> um, and I still have a lot of work to do. Um, but if there's anyone out there who has even had any kind of trauma, it doesn't even have to be lost, it's challenging sometimes in your immediate friend and, and social circles to find anyone who has also experienced at least one loss of an immediate family member. And it starts to make you feel different and isolated. And then really, truly what I talk about in the book after that is we, we tend to self-sabotage sometimes because it's just human nature to do these things. Yeah. So I talk about some of the self-sabotage that I went through meaningless relationships, not just from a sexual perspective, but from the fact that psychologically, you don't want to deal with a future, right? Yeah. So you set yourself up for failure, and then you wonder why you're failing. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, um, I, you're right, though. I mean, this idea of self-sabotage, I mean, I, I've, I don't think I've ever dealt with self-sabotage after the loss of a, of a loved one. But I mean, I've, I've been in a, in a situation, you know, depression or just feeling unconfident about who I was or just about where I was in life. I mean, with that idea of self-sabotage of I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw a stick in the wheels of my bike because I I can't let myself have a nice thing. You, you mentioned though, the idea that, you know, you're walking around, it almost feels like an otherness about you, you know, that other people can tell that there's, and I don't, I don't know if you felt this way, but I, I remember after the loss of my grandfather and this, it's hard to, it's hard to articulate, you know, you, you feel like you've been through this thing and you feel like there's something off or broken about you because you, you have this, this lump of pain in your chest and it almost feels like it's in a sense that other people can sense that about you and that it's, it feels off putting or it's just, you, you just don't know how to, you, you don't know how to have a conversation without wanting to tie it back to that because it's the only thing you can think about. Yeah. I don't, is that something that you, you felt like you dealt with? Yes. It absolutely is. And in so many different ways, um, that is incredibly relatable. And I really appreciate you sharing that, Andrew, because in the loss of a grandfather and the loss of a, a parent, a brother, a sister, whatever, right? Loss is loss. Um, yeah. And again, I try really hard to make it a point to say there should be no judgment based on who the loss is in your life, right? 
But one of the weird things that kind of plays into it is what I do for a living, um, owning my own human resources and recruiting consulting firm here in Atlanta, Georgia, can be very uniquely similar from the perspective of the psychology side of it, right? So dealing with people every day who either lost a job or need to make a transition or were forced to make a transition, you, you make space in your heart. And then God forbid someone goes to you in that space, aka just leaves without saying anything. You still have that space. Because you made it. And to fill it back in is challenging. And so, of course, people feel something in these processes where they get ghosted by either the recruiter or the recruiter gets ghosted by a candidate, right? Just like you in that situation where, unfortunately, you know, your grandfather's time had come. But you still hold that space. And that's challenging to get over. I, I really do understand what you're saying there. Yeah. I I love to. So one of the things I've I've tried to. I've, I've tried to craft and I've tried to, you know, express to people as I, as I talk to them about this podcast is, that, you know, grief and loss is not just about death. I think that's where most people's head goes. So and I understand that, but you, you touched on something there where somebody may lose a job and you think about it, that that's a loss of like a sense of self, you yeah. know, especially if you, if you are somebody who, you know, part of your identity is the work you do. And then all of a sudden you don't have that anymore. You know, that's that a space huge... is still there for that, that identity. So how yeah. do we fill that in, right? And sometimes, I'm so sorry to cut you off, but you, no. you said really spoke to me. Sometimes you're you're dealing with a recruiter or speaking with a recruiter, speaking with a colleague, whatever, and they say something that means something to you and that confidence comes back. And that's what hopefully everybody in that situation can do for someone else, right? Just let yeah. them chat with you for a minute and see if they can't get to the point where something clicks and it makes sense again and that confidence level comes back or that smile comes back that hasn't been there in a while, you know? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm really glad you br- you brought up all this about, you know, your background and your professional life. Cause I just wanted to ask you, you know, as somebody who has, you know, experienced grief and loss in, in such a, a, a major way, and then, you know, by your own admission, you know, use therapy as a way to, to get help, you know, help that, which I've said it before on the show, I'll say it again. Therapy is phenomenal. Um, even if you don't think you need it, you know, you go to the doctor every year, you go to the dentist every year, go talk to somebody every year, even if it's, always a good idea you know it can be confidential right it's not like you have to tell anybody that you're seeing or speaking with someone on the regular basis and there are so many challenges unfortunately different cultures different ethnicities have their own inner you know combative feelings about therapy and letting other people into your life and all of that that is challenging in itself right i have plenty of friends who have said oh no we don't do that in my or we don't do that in my culture, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah. challenging. I, I get it. Like, there's a whole other aspect there underlying and probably several more that I'm not even aware of, right? Yeah. All I can say is one conversation may or may not make a difference, but take that first step. And then yeah. also make sure that you're speaking with someone who really, truly listens and understands who you are. Yeah, I mean, just just talking about it sometimes, just, you know, having a thought. It's It's so crazy how having a thought just bouncing around in your head can just be causing you so much anguish, but then to just verbalize it, to just say it out loud, you know, writing down too. Yes. Well, and you know, talking to an author, so that makes perfect sense. But I mean, but really, I mean, you know, just getting it out of your head, whether you're you're writing it down, saying it out loud, there's just, there's so much, you know, there's so much power in that. And it can be so freeing and so just therapeutic and just, you know, cathartic to just get it out. It can be Um, very empowering to write it down release it from your head like you were saying 
So 100%. Those, those acts, they seem so simple. A girlfriend of mine who's actually a breast cancer survivor right now mm. um, is always telling me, girl, if you don't write it down, just write it down. And, and she is so right. And I have journal upon journal of workouts and recipes and, and um, what's it called when you pre-prep, meal prep, you know, and things yeah. like that from her because she told me, if you don't do this, you'll never start it. Now I'm an avid meal prepper. <laughs> That's that, that makes sense. Though. I mean, just the because so she's taking it a step further than just writing it down just to get the any type of pain out. She's just let me just write everything down. Yes, helps organize, helps keep you strong in a different way. Yeah, I love that. So, you know, in, in your professional life, you know, you, the, the way that you've experienced loss and grief, I mean, how, how does that, how's that help shape your day to day and your professional life or, you know, working with other people who are, you know, trying to move on to that, that next stage in their life? How has that yeah. helped you? That's a good question. So I think when it comes to working with someone who is dealing with loss, I, I, I will admit that I probably have much more of the sensitive side to be able to, whether it's recognize the signs and, or be able to be there if they're falling, to catch comfort, right, on a cushion and say, take your time, here's yeah. what might be happening, right, move forward from here kind of thing. Trying not to get involved if someone doesn't want you involved, obviously, is also a challenge, but very important to, to recognize. Um, yeah. And I will say I've been in situations both with my business partner, both with colleagues of ours from our industry and our specialties, with my with my husband and his colleagues. I mean, we've, we've been in situations where my husband is a, is a major leader in what he does and has so many different direct reports or indirect reports for that matter. But the work they do, I'll, I'll just say, <laughs> it's infrastructure related. They're leading mega programs as far as roads, bridges, and highways, that kind of infrastructure, right? Yeah. So from that perspective, we're talking about billions of dollars, right, that need to be allocated and moved from a, from a perspective in that. Yeah. So <laughs> all that to say... <laughs> He has, he has come to me a couple times in the past few years and said, oh my goodness, someone's wife, someone's husband, someone's brother, whatever is, is ill and is going to pass. And I don't know what to say in this moment without sounding like an asshole, right? And I'm yeah. like, oh, well, let me read what's going on and give me as much information so I get all the data points. I will, I will sometimes craft something and, or, or give him a, a brainstorming moment where I'm like, consider saying this. He's like, what if I do it this way? And then we work it into his words, right? And then he can be the the sensitive leader that his people really do think he is, but he relies on resources around him to get to that point. Um, and I think that's just smart, right? If you have a resource to utilize, utilize the resource. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not that I want to be the subject matter expert on this, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, from a strategy standpoint to do that, I think, you you know, you keep happy, healthy, effective employees by doing that. But just the emotional intelligence to be able to say, look, this person is experiencing something. I don't think there's any shame in saying, I don't know what to say. I am not comfortable in this situation, but I know that they need something. You know, I, I've been a leader before who I, I had an I had a former employee that um, reached out to me a couple months ago and just said, hey, let's just set up some time to chat and catch up. And I was, I was happy to do that. Mm -hmm. She told me, um, you know, a couple of years ago, whenever I was first reporting to you, you know, my father was sick. He was dying and I was out of work for a little while. But every day you called and checked in on me just to see how I was doing. And I did that. And in hindsight, it was one of those things. I didn't know what else to do. But I mean, just 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 offering some level of comfort. The fact that he, you know, he can say like this person needs some help and some support. I don't know what to do, but you know, you do. 
help me. That that's so amazing because I'm I guarantee you that it does have an impact on those people just to know that somebody, be it awkwardly <laughs> because they didn't know what to say or just you know be it with, you know, whatever the case is, it's just that somebody cared enough to try to reach out and try to offer some support. That's that's incredible. Thank you. Well, I think you you really hit the nail on the head with the way you worded it very eloquently. It's it's about at least being able to pick up on the fact that something it needs a little more something from you than yeah. the regular day, right? And and it, you may not necessarily know what that is, but the fact that you pick up on it, that is a sensitivity, that is an empathic uh, characteristic. Yeah. And not everybody has that. I think uh, I think emotional intelligence is in is in short supply in a lot of places, and I think you know I think it is something you can train. Um, and I think if more people, if they did focus on that, I think we would have a lot more happy and healthy people in the world. Wouldn't wouldn't fix everything, but I, I do think it would be beneficial. I mean, just to I understand that you know, it, it's an equity thing. Is pretty low, so we yeah. before really getting several years behind me in therapy, right? You get angry, you get jaded, you walk around with a little chip on your shoulder, right? And you feel like you're yeah. owed that because the world and life has taken something from you, right? The fact of the matter is, if you continue to walk around like that, it will negatively affect you in ways that you can't even imagine at that time. Yeah. It's, that is such an interesting point. You know, it, I I wouldn't want to blame anyone for carrying around that chip just because it it can, there can be something um, almost enjoyable, right? About being angry. Um, And I I know that might sound odd, but follow me for a second. Yeah. It, it, there is something that can be, almost um relieving or freeing or empowering about being mad you know about just owning the fact okay that i was wrong be it you know somebody did something to me or i lost someone and i'm angry at the world about that you know but when you make the choice to say okay i want to not have that i want to not carry that with me i want to not have that anger i want to not you know have that chip on my shoulder i think getting rid of that i mean and making that choice that is even more empowering i agree with you I think that is so well said. I think it's a safe place to stay, but it's not yeah. necessarily the the challenging place to stay. And not that you have to challenge yourself, but it's the safer and potentially easier place to stay, right? Yeah. Stay mad. It's what I know. It's what I do. It's what people. It's who people know me as, right? Yeah. She's the mad bitch, or she's the whatever you want to say, right? Facts yeah. of the matter is when I finally turned all that around and saw friends and people who I hadn't seen in a while, one of the best things about it is people who really know you and love you and care about you and deserve to be a part of your life are going to recognize those changes. And whether they say something to you or not, the fact that they're still engaging with you makes them a true friend or a true family member or whatever it is you're going to label it as, right? The people who don't necessarily last through all of that Maybe you weren't going to stay friends or, or stay in each other's lives forever anyway. Maybe people yeah. do come and go. Um, I also know a lot of people who love to collect and don't want to let go of anybody. Sometimes we need to release people from yeah. our lives, just like people who pass, just like feelings who, that shouldn't necessarily stay with you and, and harbor that negativity. Yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, the, the idea of letting people go, not even toxic people, but, you know, people, you grow apart from people and you're not the same, you're not the same people that you were five, 10, 20 years ago. Right. And that, that can suck. But, um, yeah. and, and it's, it's not even necessarily a bad thing. I, we've all got friends that we've, you know, we've lost touch with over the years. And it's, I can think of, you know, one of my best friends growing up, I haven't spoken to him in 15 years, if at least. And 
there was no falling out. There's no, no, I don't dislike the guy. I, I really hope the absolute best for him in the world, but we went in different, you know, different directions. And like I said, there's no resentment there, but there's definitely a, I hope he's doing well, but you know, I think it was, you know, we both are in different places and not the same people we were when we were kids. And I don't know how well we would pick up now, but. I think of all the people I knew at the, the time frame in my life of that year to five years during and after I lost both my parents because it was a year apart from each other while I was trying to graduate from college. So it's a lot going on on your plate as a 20, 21 year old, right? Yeah. And then just the relationships that I was in and how they've either grown or distanced since. And I'm dating myself, but I'm okay with that. That was 22 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Well, I'm 42 now. So, you know, I think about the relationships I was in at the time with, uh, I consider myself hetero and straight. So the, the men that I was in relationships with at the time, um, or chose to leave those relationships or other relationships that I chose to get into. I mean, looking back on them, I hope everybody can look from the perspective and go, well, Dana made crazy choices or bad choices at the time because Dana was going through a lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> And, and maybe some of those people don't know that, right? And now they know, and hopefully they can look back and go, yeah, okay, whatever. We That was 20-something years ago. <laughs> we are different people at this point. I mean, I would, I was so insecure. I was going through so much. I made so many bad decisions, put it that way. And all of that was lessons learned, right? Yeah. Growth. And, and you've got, you know, you have a growth mindset, and I think that's important. I mean, just you, you understand that you are not the mistakes you made you are not the person you were, you know, but those things, they, they all help build you into the person you are now. And it sounds like, you know, you know, you're successful, which is great, but it sounds like more than anything, you know, you're, you're happy and you're content and you're, you're in a healthy place. Andrew, that is the one thing that I can say that I have said in a few different situations in my life before getting married and conversing with rabbis during marital therapy, which is something we do before getting married in Judaism and expressing truly everything I've been through, I can honestly say I am a genuinely happy person. And in order to get to this point, it takes a lot of therapy to, to be yeah. able to say that. It takes a lot of forgiveness of myself, mistakes that I've made over the years, right? It takes a lot of growth. And my God, I still have a hell of a lot of growth and growing <laughs> to do. So if I can even get to the point where I can say all those things, other people should hopefully be able to do those things as well and feel better about themselves and the person they've become. Yeah. And I think you, you hit it though. I mean, just yet, you know, we should never stop growing. I think that's, um, growth is always, it's the thing that we should always strive for. Um, I do, I do want to shift a little bit though, cause you've touched on this a little bit already. Um, but you know, I invited you on today to talk about, you know, your, you know, your history and your experiences with, with loss. You've uh, touched on it with your family, um, through the book that you wrote, but would you mind sharing with us, you know, what your experience has been and what your story is? Yeah, no problem. So, my, the, the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of high school, sorry, college, I apologize, uh, that my mother had, um, she had adenome carcinoma of the lung. It was multiple tumors attached to some vital organs. And it was an accidental find. Um, she ended up um, getting diagnosed very ill with pneumonia. And her lung that they were looking at, that was just encased in snot, which is what pneumonia is, but it also kind of looked like the lung of a 80-year-old smoker who had been smoking for like 40 years kind of thing. So they were a little concerned because she was yeah. in her, I don't know, early, mid-40s, right, at that point when they were looking at this. So 
they did an emergency surgery and turns out that's how they identified the cancer. And so then she had to start, you know, that whole process. But then they gave her six months because I guess it was more aggressive than they thought it was before the exploratory surgery. She ended up living for two years. In that time frame, though, this summer after that, between my sophomore and junior year, my father was diagnosed with malignant pancreatic cancer. And that was very bizarre because we're trying to make arrangements and deal with my mother, who was actually doing decently at the time, going through some different treatments that seemed to be working. My father was diagnosed and then died as well. So it was like six weeks from diagnosis all the way through. And I actually, my brother and I weren't told everything that was going on at the time. So my college boyfriend at the time had invited me back to Connecticut for his uh, younger sister's high school graduation. So I wasn't even in my the state when my father passed and they allowed me to go. Yeah. So we didn't know the whole story. And and that, you know, parents do do different things to try to, you know, keep you from knowing too much, you know, and, and try to support you and not scare you and all of that. Right. But yeah. maybe not the best <laughs> unfortunate situation <laughs> sitting in my boyfriend at the times, you know, a family home's kitchen, getting a call from a random stranger going, Dana, it's for you. And, it's my family physician on the phone going, you need to come home immediately. Your father has died. I'm, you know, and I pass out on their floor <laughs> and I'm meeting his family for the first time. So you can imagine what all is going on from that perspective. His family and he, they were amazing, by the way. My biggest concern was not trying to take away from his little sister's high school graduation. Meanwhile, they're like, well, we got to get you back to Atlanta. You know, yeah. it was just a lot. Um, and then <laughs> several years later, hush. Several years later, sorry, dog. Um, My brother passed and my brother had become, after losing both his parents, he was 16 when our father died. A son losing his father at 16 at any age. But you can imagine that's a traumatizing time. And then literally a year later, losing his mother and only being 17. I was a little older. I was four years older. You know, I was on my way to being a pseudo adult on my own. He's still figuring life out. I believe at that time, trauma hit him so hard, he just stopped developing. Emotional intelligence, incredibly low. Learning anything after that at that point, and, and, and you know, pseudo-adulthood just really never happened for him, yeah. unfortunately. And uh, he ended up becoming morbidly obese. He ended up making it through college, graduating college, um, several colleges to try to do that, but it's not a race, right? Um, But unfortunately, just never really got a grasp on life and what it was going to mean to him, never really found meaningful employment, and became morbidly obese and was drinking a lot of beer and smoking a lot of cigarettes, and I think had a heart attack. And one of his friends said had heard from him in two weeks and, you know, got the um, super to open up the apartment and they found him dead on his apartment floor. So that was a challenging one, got that call from a family member, had to deal with all that as well. And it just... Again, I know that was several years after my parents' passing, but it was my parents and then my brother. And then you start wondering, am I next? You know? Yeah. yeah. It, so. And I, I can't even, I, I'll be honest, I can't even imagine just, just the, to have so much loss so close to you, just so so close together. Yeah. You know, I mean. Sometimes, I, it's, <laughs> sometimes it's, I hate to say this, but almost better to have the bad stuff just sort of Keep happening because you're already suffering. Um, but I will tell you from my personal perspective, I was much more traumatized by my brother's um, loss because I felt like there more could have been done. 
um, you know, with cancer, with my parents, there's only so much you can do. But with yeah. my brother, I really truly felt like if somehow I had found a way to connect with him and say, and then that it clicked with him, it was the challenge, right? Is that don't let all this weight be a big deal, just slowly healthy, start losing weight, go to a doctor, you know, something like that. And he just never would, right? Yeah. And, and so that was challenging for me. Um, and I ended up drinking too much for probably about 30, 35 nights in a row after my father, my father, sorry, my brother passed um, because it took such a toll on me. Um, and the one thing that really kind of dragged me out of that drunken stupor was honestly the coroner that I was dealing with. Female who knew my story, knew of my losses with my parents and said, I'm going to figure this out for you because she really was struggling to find a legit reason for death, cause of death. Yeah. Ended up being able to find some fluid around one of his eyeballs that did allow her to tell me that it was adult onset diabetes that were untreated. And that's why he had that heart attack. So it was, it was helpful. And then also just so discouraging because in that moment I was like, it was the health. And then I'm looking at the handle that I'm about to finish that <laughs> night and was like, well, you can't do this anymore. Yeah. Right. Clearly. Cause it's the health, the health concerns. And so I, we took things a little opposite to the extreme, you know, from the health perspective and maybe got a little too healthy for a moment and then was like, okay, healthy balance, right? <laughs> well, and, and yeah, balance is important. I mean, I think what you said makes sense. Though. I mean, can't cancer is just, it's just this chaotic thing that, you know, you, yeah, you can try to reduce the risk, but it's one of, it's, it's unfortunately, it's one of those things. It's just, it, it happens sometimes and it's horrible, you know? with your brother, I, I, I can't, and I'm, I'm sure it hurt more too, just with his age. And, yeah. and I, I can't even fathom. I mean, he was, I think he was 26. I'm going to go ahead and say that, even though it makes me super emotional because he's 26. I mean, yeah. people unfortunately die every day who are way younger than that, but that's, that's, you got so much life ahead of you. Right. Yeah. And it's still, I think, especially the older I get, and I don't know if you feel the same way, but the older I get, the more it, 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 it hurts when you see people that are young passing away or when you think about people, you, you know, you knew like, you know, maybe when you were younger, every, every school has one or two kids, unfortunately, every year that pass away. And it's, it, right. and it's so sad. And you realize it's sad at the time, but I think as you get older, you can look back and you just realize just how sad that is that you're right. There's so much life in front of them. Oh yeah. You know? and I remember in high school, one of the first times that I experienced death from just someone that you knew of that you kind of worked with or had a relationship with, you know, we all, a bunch of us lifeguarded um, here in Georgia when we were all 16 and, and the kids still do it these days, still very popular at the water parks. And I worked at Lake Lanier Islands water park for many years as a lifeguard there. And one of our fellow lifeguards one day and we we're sitting in class and someone's reading a newspaper and says this, this young man's name out loud. And I was like, well, we know him. Like that's who this is. And they were like, no, and it became a reality to them. So young to realize now, you know, almost 40 years later, right? No. not really, more like 20 years later, but regardless, more, you know, 20 plus years later to realize that saying those things out loud and, and that they're real people, humans who existed, right? You know, it just no. really gets you. And even with some, some maturity behind me, I don't claim that, but let's just say something <laughs> older, right? The maturity behind me these days, I'm a little more sensitive to it now so, right? When someone says, oh my gosh, I remember so-and-so, right? It's not as much of a emotional drama, you know, whatever. It's more about the person. How are you? Are you doing okay, right? Like, are you being, are you affected by this? Can I help you in any way? 
And you know you're right. I think that's that's the thing. And this is what's most awkward. I think and hardest whenever, whenever you're around somebody who's lost somebody or has go- just recently gone through a loss. This idea of okay, we never know what to say to that person. And I think a lot of times there's a lot that goes unsaid because of that. Like, I think people will let their own discomfort prevent them from offering support because it's awkward and it's uncomfortable. And it's almost when somebody's going through some type of loss, it's almost like we don't want to address it or people don't want to address it because they're afraid that it's contagious. Well, if I talk to you about it, then am I, does it happen to me next? And I think one, one of the most important things I think you can do is just, you know, how are you? And especially in a situation where somebody's lost somebody to death, I, I think one of the things that's best is just ask, tell me about the person. If, if you're in a place to, if you're comfortable, tell me about them, you know, that's and, and so that's, great. well, that's why I, I, I wanted to do the show, you know, was, you know, you've told me who you lost, but tell me about them. Tell me about your family. Yeah, and I do a, a decent job at painting a pretty negative picture of my father, unfortunately, in my book. Um, but we've both made peace with that already, just so everybody knows. Like, <laughs> I've prayed about it and spoken to him. However you want to, you know, I don't want to yeah. offend anyone or anything, but I, I feel like we have a relationship even with him after death, right, kind of situation. So. I've made my peace. I've we've both forgiven each other for all of that, but it was necessary to share some of that. But oh, my father, a Frenchman through and through, <laughs> very elitist. <laughs> also spoke Hebrew with a French accent, which I love. And somebody commented on that the other night in uh, services at Temple. What is that accent? And I said, oh, it's a French accent. <laughs> so you're speaking Hebrew with a French accent. And I said, just this particular prayer, unfortunately today. <laughs> And it's because it was ingrained in me from my father. And so with his French accent, then my accent became a French accent, which is hilarious. I know. Um, But yeah, so my father was uh, an attorney, uh, in-house corporate general counsel for many, many years. Um, Loved wine, loved cigars, cigar aficionados. I love cigars too. Probably one of the things that didn't do so well with the malignant pancreatic cancer, right? If you want to know the truth. But at this point, um, loved grappa, loved scotch. I also drink scotch and grappa because of him. I am my father's daughter. Really, truly, <laughs> that's what it is. There's a lot of like combativeness when I talk about my father, but I'm pretty much the exact same person, which is awesome and embarrassing. Listen <laughs> well, that how it goes. The, same time. the more like the more like a parent a child is, the more likely they are to butt heads. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, my father basically raised me, and my mother raised my brother. My mother was gorgeous, a professional dancer. Uh, she was involved in the insurance world and industry for a while as well. Um, five, seven, a buck 20 wet, like thin, tight, you know, dancer body. Um, and I looked up to her like there was no tomorrow. This, this was the woman who taught me my women's live. This was the woman who taught me I could do anything boys could do, you know, yeah, all that. And my brother was the cutest little dude when we were younger little blonde curls bright blue icy eyes uh, my mom had eyes like the ocean dark after a storm dark dark blue kind of like your shirt yeah um, and my dad had dark brown eyes like me um my son funny enough has very rare gray eyes <laughs> don't know really? yeah i mean i have a lot of blue eyes in my family on both sides of my family my my husband though is all brown eyes like all brown eyes that I'm aware of. Yeah. So I don't know where those gray eyes come from, but somewhere in that blue and brown mix in the genetics, somebody can do that for me and tell me how rare they actually are. Right. 
Um, but yeah, he looks just like me. He's my mini me. So he has darker skin like I do. And so his gray piercing eyes, especially in the summer, at the end of the summer when we're both really, really tan. And he also has, he has sandy blonde hair. That's another thing. <laughs> I don't know where you got that. So, so, so nice and tan, sandy blonde hair, and then gray eyes. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. We're in trouble. How about that? We're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, he seems to be very kind, very compassionate, very empathetic. He's the greeter. Everyone always refers to him as the greeter because he loves to introduce his friends to each other, which I love because awesome. I do that. He's been watching me do that like ever since <laughs> he was an infant. So clearly it comes from the human resources background. <laughs> It's always so cool, just like the the small traits that you have that you don't think about that your kids will pick up on. Exactly. Uh, our daughter, even something you and your wife do that your six year old does, right? Oh yeah, we were we were at my mother in law's um the last two days, and even even yesterday uh, afternoon we were all sitting on the couch, and my my wife just looked at me and she kind of said, "Hey, look at how she's sitting." And she's sitting with her legs crossed the same way that I do, and it's. I don't know that's something that she looked at me and said, I'm going to do that, but it's just this thing that she just, she just does. Yeah. And it's just so cool to me just how, how they'll pick up on their on other characteristics. It is. It is. That is so cool. Um, so you, you told me a little bit about your, your family, you know, what kind of, you know, I know you said that, you know, food culture is so, you know, food is so important in your culture. I mean, what were meals like as a family? Oh, yeah, we used to eat family dinner together every night. Even when we moved from when we relocated from Los Angeles to Georgia back in the day, you know, my job every night as part of chores was I always had to make salad. So every night, regardless of what we were having, we were having a fresh salad. Yeah. Um, so it was usually darker greens. I remember reading about it. My mother was very into organics, you know, even back in the day in the 80s in Los Angeles, Evian water, right? All that nonsense. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so as, as, time, you know, went by and you, you heard that darker lettuce was healthier for you than the lighter lettuce, right? So that adjustment was made, but our veggie drawer was constantly filled with fresh produce and I'm supposed to take it all out every night, chop it all up, make it that salad and make sure that salad was part of the process. My mother had several, first of all, my mother was a phenomenal cook in my eyes and learned from some hopefully great women on my father's side. Um, I don't want to down my mother's side at all, but I know that my cousin can cook and my aunt used to be a good cook. And my other aunt used to be a good cook, but I personally feel, and I'm so sorry to my mother's side, that my father's side is where all the good cooking comes from. <laughs> and I have plenty of those recipes <laughs> as well. Um, but yeah, in our house, my mother used to make some really great stuff. She made a full-on authentic Spanish paella that was oh, to Lord. die for. Yeah. That sounds incredible. Um, yeah. My mother was a Spanish major in college and actually spent a year abroad in Spain and, and spoke Spanish fluently. Um, and I feel like I got a lot of her language skills from her, but my father also spoke several languages. So. <laughs> That's all. Um, something else that she used to make that we would love was just very easy roasted chicken, roasted potatoes, asparagus, or, or um, Brussels sprouts, you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, back in the day, now today we call them like, you know, sheet pan meals, right? Yeah. But back in the day, everything was all super <laughs> separated, right? Um, and man, that woman can make some gefilte fish. Gefilte fish is the the fish conglomerate looking thing that you have on Passover. Yeah. Um, and some of the recipes that she would use over the years. The only one that I ever loved is my Aunt Teddy's recipe from my father's side, which is a, a little bit of a sweeter fish. Really good. Um, supposedly that recipe is being handed down to me, but not on paper, only verbally. So I'm going to have to really pay attention. 
That's so that. So is that historically how that's been handed down? Because if so, that, that is so cool. Because it's so sensitive. And back in the day, you know, it's competitive, if you will, in the small towns in Europe, right? Trying to keep your recipe to yourself when people you want to share and you want to invite people over for holidays, but you don't want to yeah. give away your recipes. <laughs> that's all you had if you think yeah. about it back in the day right all you have is your family name and your recipe yeah and, and it's something it's you know every, you know everything you know you can think about family heirlooms like okay you know jewelry or china or whatever but i i i don't think there could be any better family heirloom than a recipe that it's just this one specific thing that hey we do this we do it very well we have our own little spin on it and it's because you think about it it's something that you could eat and it could have been your great grandmother 100 years ago exactly how she made it and eat this thing. It's like, okay, this is exactly what she had a hundred years ago. It's the exact same thing. It's almost like sharing a yeah. meal with an ancestor. No, you're so right. You're so right. I, my husband swears to this day that the only reason he married me was my Moroccan chicken. <laughs> my mother made a pretty good Moroccan chicken, but my, uh, my girlfriend, um, I guess I, I don't know if I should say her name or not, but one of my girlfriends gave me her recipe. I adapted as my own. And now that's the recipe that apparently yeah. got me <laughs> wedded. <laughs> you know, Look, everybody's got to bring something to the table. You know, my, right. my wife has certain recipes that she does really well. I've got one or two up my sleeve that, you know, I know she really likes. It's everybody's got to have something. Nice. Nice. Yeah. My husband used to make a really good turkey meatloaf. So <sighs> meatloaf is one of those things. I, I, I remember eating it as a kid. I don't remember the last time I had it as an adult, but it, it you know, it's that idea again of comfort food, just something that you take a bite. We never it's had like, meatloaf growing up. We really? never had meatloaf. Growing. It was never something that was even on my radar, if you want to know the truth. I don't think I had meatloaf for the first time until I was in high school, and I didn't like it. Um, but I think it was because I might have had it at, like, a cafeteria style. I wanted to try meatloaf for the first time, right? It wasn't a homemade, necessarily. You know, it was a bulk-made meatloaf. Yeah, that's no fair. no judgments, just saying, you know. No, I, I, Many I, people in the world are probably like, oh, well, you have to try my meatloaf, and I will. <laughs> That's see, that's the thing. I I am uh, I'm so you talked about gefilte fish. I've never had it. I'm not the biggest fan of seafood, but if somebody told me, "Hey, you want to try this?" I I am very much a I'm going to try it. I I love to try new food, and because you just you never know what you're going to try and like. That's true. That's true. That's a rule we have. I in always our tell people to try new things. Just go try new things, even if you don't like spices or crazy stuff, or you think it's crazy stuff. Take a little taste. Just a little taste. Yeah. And, and see, and that's the, the thing too, like the, it's a crazy thing. Like we talked to our daughter about this. She knows that we've got a rule in the house. You don't have to like everything. You just got to try stuff. And we also were working on the, you know, just, if you try something you don't like, like, cause I don't want her to ever go to a friend's house and try something for dinner and be like, I don't like this. Sometimes you got to choke it down, but never just make a judgment or assume because you just, you never know. Yeah. You know, every, every dish has its own, you know, its own background, its own history. I mean, you just, you never know what's going to be good. That's so true. Uh, so, uh, you know, I do want to talk about some of the food. So, you know, whenever we were doing kind of our pre uh, our pre intro, you know, you mentioned one of your uh, your mother's favorite recipes. Um, I am afraid to butcher the, <laughs> the pronunciation. Uh, the charoset. Yes. Can Char- you talk yes, to me about that? Charoset. Did you want uh, me to elaborate on it a little bit? I'm yeah. Sorry. No, that's okay. Sure. What what kind of food is that? I've, I've just I've never heard of it. Yeah, charoset is a chutney style food that is a mix of nuts and fruits that are usually sort of Middle Eastern, you know, sounding and feeling um, and tasting with like apricots and red wine and apples and figs and maybe even raisins or even golden raisin or multiple raisins, right? That kind of thing. Um, And my mom used to make one that her friends really, really, really loved. And to this day, so many women 
uh, friends of mine now, but also they were my mother's friends while I was growing up, still write me or send me random pictures on Passover, which is the holiday where Haroset becomes necessary. In the um, Passover story, the Haroset represents the, the mortar between the bricks that when Jews were slaves in Egypt that we used to create the, the pyramids, basically. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that's what the Haroset represents. And my mother's recipe just lives on forever. It, it, you know, I love that story because I love it when the women reach out. I love it when they show me that they're still using the exact same recipe or even made an adjustment to it. And they're like, it was really good. And I love it. Yeah. Is that something that you still make? And is that something your son that he eats? Um, my son doesn't eat it because I don't make it because I never, uh, I never, um, we don't host for Passover. Okay. We go somewhere else traditionally. Yeah. We go up to Toronto to my father's side um, because after both my parents had passed, well, actually after my father had passed, my mother and my brother and I went to Toronto to be with my father's side for that particular holiday. And I kept doing it basically every year since. So yeah. now that I have my own family, we go up there for Passover. Obviously, we haven't done it for the past several years due to the pandemic. And we are very excited and eager for next Passover next year. Yeah. Well, that'd be fun, though. I mean, at some point, you know, for him to get to try that. And, and you know, it's, it's again, it's that, that thing of like, okay, this was your grandmother's. And at some point, he gets to have that I too. I really need to do that. You're right. <laughs> and it's, and, and I, I, I say it because, I mean, there are certain things that, you know, I grew up with that I want to make sure that, you know, my daughter, that she, you know, she gets exposed to. So there are certain foods that we still need to, my, my mother's uh, chicken and dumplings recipe. Um, I, I have to get that from her at some point because that is, that is my childhood in a bowl. Like that right there is that thing that, if I had, like, if I was on death row and I had one more meal, if I could have that, that would be the thing that please let me have this and I'll be good. The chicken and dumplings. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. So, um, so let me, you know, so let me ask this, you know, we've talked about some of the food, you know, if you had a chance now to have one more meal with your family, you know, what do you think, like, what would you want? If you had, a, if you had that chance to have one more, what would that be? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I will be very honest and transparent. The one holiday randomly was not a Jewish holiday, but Thanksgiving. And with Thanksgiving actually coming up right around the corner, um, I would love to do a Thanksgiving with my family. I would love to do that. That was the one holiday that I just couldn't see myself making it through. Um, and until I had my own family, until I'd gotten married um, and was able to celebrate Thanksgiving with my husband's family or other friends or something like that, you know, just finding a way through that. Um, I really didn't want to celebrate the holiday at all. Just didn't yeah. want to do it. And so now that I'm through that and over that, and we have other ways of celebrating it that are much happier. Yeah. I think I'm come full circle and would love to do a Thanksgiving with my family. I understand that. Is that a holiday now that, you know, now that you do have your family, is it more of a, is it more of an event now? Not at our house. Like we don't usually host, but if we do host, it's just usually my, um, my husband's mom who comes, yeah. which is so nice. We usually celebrate Thanksgiving with one of my girlfriends who has us over, um, who <laughs> conveniently enough, I'll share, I'll share this because it means so much to me after losing my parents. And be, I had already been friends with this young woman, um, many, many years ago, she just invited me. She didn't say, do you want to, um, come or anything? You know, maybe you should yeah. consider, she's like, you're coming with me and you're coming to Thanksgiving with my family. And so for many years, I would say like five or six Thanksgivings in a row, I went to Thanksgiving with her and her family, got to know all of them, worked for her uncle for like five years during that time as well. Like that was one of my first jobs in, in recruiting. I mean, and, and we're still friends to this day. And now that she has her own family, 
and a fantastic house to host in. We go to her house for things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's wonderful though, especially, you know, we, we talked about emotional intelligence that, you know, that she had the emotional intelligence at such a young age that, Hey, she needs this and I'm going to provide that. And, and I love this idea too, that, you know, family, family's not just who you're born into it. It's sometimes it's the people you choose along the way. So, I mean, it, you know, it sounds like, I mean, she, you know, she is still family. That's she's wonderful. a great friend. She's one of those friends that in one minute will be, I don't want to say judging you, but like you need to put a sweater on that baby, right? <laughs> and then the <laughs> next minute she'll be like, oh, by the way, you're coming over for this. Love it. Yeah. I love it. Group activity leader. See, I think every every friend group needs that person. We have that in, in my friend group. We have that person who she's the one that every year she for a decade plus now, she's like, okay, I'm having a Christmas party on this day. Everybody come. You know, she used to organize like, okay, let's all go out and do this thing together. And it's nice to have that. I mean, I think every it's every every friend group needs like the pack mom or the pack dad who says, okay, let's get together. Let's make sure we do this at least once a year that we all see each other. That's wonderful. I agree. I agree. Um, well, you know, before we wrap up, I, I do want to ask, you know, any any last things that you, you can think of, anything that, you know, about your family, about the grief process, about food in general, just anything that, you know, stands out to that you wanted to, to talk about? I'll say back in the 80s when Boboli pizza, right, and DiGiorno pizza kind of situation be, was becoming a thing, um, we used to make homemade pizza, and that yeah. was so fun. And a lot of people used to do that, I think, back in the day, too. Then my father fancied himself a chef at one point and wanted to make homemade pasta. Okay. That was hilarious because he'd bring out this like metal looking torture device with like <laughs> grinder right here and the noodles would come out and it literally looked like something out of a horror movie it was also very fun and probably the only time my father ever contributed really truly in the kitchen. So yeah. I definitely remember those moments very fondly. I would love to do those again for sure. And I would say, to anyone as far as therapy or discussion, you know, no judgment, right? No judgment. No. Everyone has their own path, their own way of getting through things. Um, check the book out. Just see, yeah. just see how it makes you feel. See if and, it gives and you so, any ideas. And, and I'm, I'm glad you said, because I do want to make sure that we plug that. So, you know, we talked about the book that's coming out. Uh, one more time, that's Before I Knew It, They Were Gone, A Jewish First Generation American Woman's Journey Through the Darkness. Um, do you have a, do you know when that'll be releasing yet? Has the date been set? And then where can we go to find it? It has not yet been set. It will be, uh, for pre-sale available on Amazon, um, as well as some other stores. And I will get you that information as follow-up here in the next couple of months when I find out. Perfect. And that's one of those things. So for anyone listening, you know, uh, as, we, as I know more, I will make sure to share it on social media. We'll make sure that that's out there. Um, Dana, I cannot wait for the book to come out. I cannot wait to read it. I think it's going to be incredible. Um, also, I'm just, I'm so thankful you joining today and, and sharing about your family and, and talking with us. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. This was so comforting. I feel like you and I are friends just from this one interaction. Yeah. I can really relate to you and you seem like you really relate to me and I just appreciate you. Certainly. And I, I do. And I, I just appreciate you being vulnerable, being open and sharing yourself. I think that's just, I, I, I really hope that this is the kind of thing that more people will be open to. And I think there's a lot of benefit from it. I really do. This is an awesome podcast. You're doing good things. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you again to Dana for joining and talking with us about her family, how she managed to heal, and the importance of emotional intelligence. Dana's new book, 
Before I knew it, they were gone. A Jewish first-generation American woman's journey through the darkness will release later this year. I'll be sure to update the podcast as the release date gets closer. I know that I can't wait to read it, and I hope you will as well. You can also follow Our Last Mill on Twitter and Instagram at Our Last Mill Pod, or visit us at OurLastMill.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, you can reach out by clicking the Share Your Story button. And as always, I encourage you to find time to enjoy a meal with someone you care about.